0: You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Welcome to The Exchange as we move into a new week of trading. I'm Kelly Evans, and here's what's ahead this hour China faltering. What does it mean for global growth and financial stability as fresh concerns emerge over China's property sector and its shadow banks? One thing is for certain the U.S. dollar is up 4% in just the past month. Is that safe haven trade back? And if so, why aren't long bonds acting like it? We'll debate the best places globally to find value. Plus, what could turn China's economy around and boost the the global outlook? The answer, unfortunately, is the very culprit caught in a U.S.-China tug-of-war right now, details on what could boost China's productivity and whether they can and should gain access to it. And a big date looming just a couple weeks from now. September 1st is when drug price reductions are set to take effect. And one of our guests says it'll make the entire large cap pharma space vulnerable and it will hit five names first. We have those details ahead. If that's not enough, Dom Chu is over here with a look at our market.
1: Well, you and I have been up very early and we're still here upright right now. But Kelly, if you look at the board behind me, you'll see that things have haven't changed a lot from when we were on in Squawk Box this morning, but... We have seen an acceleration in the technology trade. I'll get a little bit more behind what's kind of driving that sentiment a little bit in uh, just a couple of minutes here. But the Dow Industrials are just about flat on the session. I mean, one point on a 35,283 base, that's pretty much unchanged. 44.82, rather, the S&P 500 is up 18 points, about one half of 1%. Uh, 18 points up at the highs of the day. We were up roughly 22 points there, Uh, down 11 at the lows of the session. So tilting more towards the higher end of that range so far today. The NASDAQ composite is the outperformer, up about three quarters of one percent. The composite index, that's 96 points to the upside, 13,741. And like I said, I'll tell you one of the reasons why that's kind of outperforming so far today. Uh, Thematically speaking, it's a big week for retail earnings, a big couple of weeks if you want to look at it this way. But a bulk of these names are from the mega cap side of things we'll report this week, including Home Depot, Target, Walmart, TJX companies and Estee Lauder. That will give you a kind of interesting spectrum over just about every part of the retail spending landscape. Home Depot, Target, Walmart right now, just about one half to a one percent declines there for those three. TJX and Estee Lauder, again, mixed so far today, but keep an eye on those catalysts for retail. It'll be a big week for them. And then. One of the reasons for the outperformance is because of the single best performing stock in the entire S&P 500 so far this year by a wide margin. Viewers and listeners on SiriusXM channel 112 know that it's NVIDIA. The shares are up 195 percent so far this year. Earlier this morning, we were much weaker, but we're up towards session highs right now, up 6 percent. It reports earnings next week. And then this morning, we got analysts, saying at Morgan Stanley that this is their top pick going into that earnings-driven catalyst. They think that the pullback that we saw, which, by the way, was only about 15% before the 5% gain, makes it an attractive entry point. Kelly, this is interesting. The momentum is obviously on NVIDIA's side, but it currently now trades at 47 times forward earnings. Uh, there's a big debate about whether that catalyst is going to be the one that people want to buy. I'll send things it's back It's
0: probably over. bad that my reaction is, hey, that's not that high, you know, 47 times. As
1: Josh Brown pointed out to me on the halftime report last week, it's been overvalued for a while and people still... They want to buy it.
0: Yep. And undoing about a third of that decline we've seen already right. in just today's move. Dom, thanks you very much. Well, the U.S. dollar could be on the verge of a breakout. It's up 4% in the past month and trading above its 200-day moving average for the first time this year. Among the reasons, China's weakening currency, which just hit its lowest levels of 2023 against the dollar. It comes after fresh concerns about China's property sector and shadow banks. And we do get a bunch more Chinese data tomorrow. Retail sales, industrial production, and property investment figures. Here discuss is Tim Seymour, the CIO of Seymour Asset Management and a CNBC contributor. Tim, it's great to see you. And I'm going to get right to the heart of some of the concerns in the kind of pre-market here before things stabilized. What is going on with China's property and shadow, property sector shadow banks?
2: Well, there's, there's enormous bad debts out there. There's a lot of help that the government can need to provide. There's an enormous amount of liquidity and the speculation and the reverberation of that speculation to China's broader investor market capital flight. It's significant. And other times when we've seen the property markets and either bad debts or the inability to, to really project where cash flows are coming for a lot of these folks that have stuff to repay, you know it's weighed heavily on the currency and as you pointed out uh, the yuan is off about 2% even in the last 2 weeks or so uh, when the dollar's actually rallied significantly and a lot of that i think has to do with the yuan but the property market's been hanging over and the specter of a property market collapse has been hanging over china for you know almost a decade yeah. and, and so i'm not going to tell you that it, we should be sanguine about these risks um, i will say that china is going to and is certainly cognizant of the risks the broader risk for the economy
0: no, I I had the same reaction when this came back in the headlines. I felt like, is, is it 2018? You know, it, didn't we kind of, yeah. do, I guess the answer is it didn't go anywhere. And this is what kind of zombification can look like. One weird quirk, and you know vastly more about this, maybe you can explain, is I notice as the dollar's rallying, our long bonds are selling off. So normally I think to myself, okay, Global investors want, you know, U.S. assets. Well, that's basically Treasury. So, that, so you'd think everything would kind of, you know, the yields would be kind of headed down all across the board. I guess this tells us that even in trying to get their hands on dollars or dollar assets, they're, you know, kind of airing towards the short end and not the long end. Can you interpret that at all?
2: Well, my, my interpretation, I guess, is I, I don't know that they're totally correlated. I, I, I think the dollar strength here over the last three weeks, and as you noted, through the 200-day, you can make an argument that the last time that the dollar traded upwards through the 200-day uh, was back in June of 21, where it was going on a 28% move, wow. uh, really, where you know, maybe we peaked last October or not. But the last three weeks, if you think about the dynamics between uh, some of this is China, some of this is Japan. Some of this is a Treasury uh, refunding announcement. Some of this is central bank differentials, what we've learned over the last couple of weeks uh, out of Europe and maybe even out of Japan, that those central banks aren't as aggressive. So I think there's reasons why the dollar is rallying here. Um, I would also make an argument that the dollar was one of the most cra- short dollar, one of the most crowded long, uh, sh- excuse me, trades, short trades that we've seen uh, against broader institutional investors. And-, and I think that has something to do with it, too. Positioning was for the dollar to be weaker especially before uh, the Fitch dynamics. And remember back when S&P downgraded the U.S. AAA back in in October, excuse me, August of 2011. The dollar actually went on a major, major rally. And and so there's different ingredients here.
0: So let's zoom out maybe our chart. Do you say it was 2018 or 2019 was the last time we went up above the 200-day?
2: Yeah, I would say back as we actually as in 2021 through oh, the upside. So yeah. I'm saying um, in in June of 21, the, the the dollar actually in May of 21 was kind of at a, a a cycle low, and then this was really the beginning of the Fed hiking cycle. And and I would make an argument that most of the dollar and the Dixie. Uh, price drivers are from central bank differentials. There was a long time, uh, at least during that period, when we knew our Fed was uh, on the back foot and needed to get front footed. We didn't really hear from the Fed until October. The currency markets, I I think, sniffed this out back in May. But it was June uh, of 21 when it actually rallied through the 200-day to the upside, and that that was an auger of a very significant dollar run. I'll, I'll make an argument, we've been in a dollar bull market for 15 years. We've certainly been in one for 12, uh, I, it doesn't end overnight, but I, I would still be on the side of uh, dollar weakness over the next year, year and a half rather than dollar strength.
0: And we were just showing that 200 day. Uh, you can see that that sharp upward move. It'd be interesting if we repeated that dollar strength, obviously, is a headwind for for corporate earnings. But it does defy the dollar collapse predictions that we've been hearing about time and again, especially after covid. So, right. some, you know, interest rate differentials. Last time around, the Fed was about to start tightening or kind of lead the pack in kind of talking that way. And I guess then doing that, if if I'm hearing you correctly. So what does that imply, the market thinks now? Because we're talking about Goldman and rate cuts next year and that kind of thing.
2: So uh, interest rate differentials, uh, I think, are going to continue to favor U.S. investment. And, And having said that, I think a lot of the move we've seen in the Treasury market, especially in the longer end over the last Two weeks has been about the refunding schedule and and the markets i I don't think are necessarily panicking around that dynamic but i uh, i do think there are technical elements of why u.s longer rates are moving higher even though the projection is that we could see fed funds uh, in by 65 bips between out and a year Uh, The dynamics in Japan are significant. Central bank buying uh, around the world towards treasuries is is changing. That's maybe where some of those differentials, I realize, uh, small changes on a relative basis in Japan um, are significant in terms of some of their insurance companies and some of the domestic buyers. So I think Japan has something to do with our higher rates here as well. Uh, And again, I I tried to correlate dollar and treasury markets, two of the biggest markets in asset classes in the world, um, I I think isn't easy to to tie them exactly together here.
0: Mm -hmm. Fair enough. Real quickly before you go, you mentioned Japan. But if I were to say to you China's currency weakening, Japan, you know, the yen breaching 145, ruble collapsing, Argentinian peso. I mean, you look around the world. Is this all just a coincidence, this timing?
2: No, this isn't this isn't a coincidence, and I think the the yuan's pressure on EM currencies is something to watch. And and unfortunately for EM investors, if you if you looked at about three four weeks ago, uh, frankly, I, I, I was very constructive. I remain constructive on EM because I think the the worst part of uh, the Fed and interest rates and, and inflation are behind us. I think some EM currencies are going to suffer from actually you know commodity prices moving higher, but for the most part, EM currencies are going to are going to suffer if China is. In a distress situation, which I'm not sure that's where we are. Um, EM currencies are going to sell off. We've seen this time and time again. Uh, Japan uh, in the region also is tends to be a beneficiary when you see this kind of weakness in in the Chinese currency. Uh, the yen has been a puzzler because obviously, right, we have inflation or at least, uh, you know, we have a, a world where the Bank of Japan really does need to finally do something. It's very bullish for Japanese equities. They've often been a great hedge when yields have been moving higher. And so I think a lot of global equity investors are seeing that. And I think there are Structural reasons in Japan, including buybacks, uh, dividends, requirements on the TSE for Japanese companies to play ball different than they did 10 years ago are reasons why Japanese equities fundamentally could still go higher.
0: Especially if the currency remains under pressure, shall we say. Tim, no one breaks it down like you yeah. do. Thank you so much for your time this afternoon. Thank you, Kelly. Tim Seymour joining us. My next guest has zeroed in on the key to boosting productivity in China to avoid that currency mess Tim was talking about. But you may not like the answer. It really comes down to how and how quickly the nation can harness artificial intelligence. The U.S., of course, has banned China from gaining access to America's advanced AI chips, which our guest warns also won't significantly slow China down, as Chinese companies like Baidu, Alibaba, and Tencent have been making fast progress in developing their own chips. For more, let's bring in Barclays China Technology analyst. Jiang Xiao. Jiang, welcome to the program.
3: Thanks for having me.
0: Let me unpack the first part of this, which is why, I mean, it seems obvious, you know, whatever the next innovation is drives productivity. Just connect the dots for us a little bit about why, why AI is so important to China.
3: I think over the last 30 years, by the way, we are taking a very long view uh, on this report and our AI. And over the last 30 years, China has reaped a lot of the dividends I call population dividends um, since the reform started. And you saw the rise of the economy, rise of manufacturing, and, and, and also the increase of the Chinese population. And, and now I think Chinese population is set to decline and the, the, the population or so-called population dividends are running out. The only way out of this puzzle is really to increase productivity. and And, and China historically hasn't had a really big software or SaaS industry, this AI may, may be the answer right. uh, for, for Chinese companies and for Chinese economy.
0: But it's a dilemma because, unfortunately, the AI, I guess you could say, could be used um, against uh, American interests. And that's certainly why there's been a crackdown on offering them access to the most advanced chips. How do we unlock good productivity gains that you know can benefit, I guess, the entire global economy and not uh, give away something too precious or valuable?
3: I think, uh, again, this is uh, a geopolitics uh, sort of um, beyond my domain expertise. Uh, I think U.S. administration ha- uh, has been doing is to slow China down, right? So they banned the sales of the most advanced the Nvidia chips, the A100 and H100 to China, but Chinese companies can still get their hands on the sort of a second to the best chips, which is A800 and H800. It will slow China down, but uh, we don't think is gonna stop them from making adequate advance. And we have seen technology development over the years in history. Um, Technology is very global and and all the entrepreneurs and scientists and engineers around the world are doing their best to make the next technology breakthrough. Mm -hmm. Um, We um, do not believe the ban will have a material damage uh, to slow down Chinese AI development.
0: Uh, My understanding is China's good at developing some of these advanced chips, but they're very unstable. And so they can crash a lot and months worth of work can be lost in all of that investment. So I guess that's the next uh, sort of issue that the companies there have to crack. Listen, you're the, the China technology analyst for investors watching. Which companies do you think are best positioned already in China to maybe crack this code, get it right and be the next NVIDIA stock?
3: Well, the two companies are leading the pack there. And there are dozens and dozens of companies uh, in China making these foundational models. Uh, just like uh, in early days of many technology advancements, most of these guys probably won't make it. But the two leaders uh, are Alibaba and Baidu, in our opinion. And they were the first ones launched their uh, large language model and seen the pipeline to be approved. And Chinese regulations around this area will soon be finalized later this week, in fact. And we think that the commercialization approval will come shortly after that. So in our view, is Alibaba and, and Baidu are the clear leader right now? Of course, it's, it's way too early to really declare mm-hmm. the ultimate winners uh, yet.
0: But those stocks are certainly up this year, and, and that might uh, certainly explain why. John, thanks so much for your time today. We appreciate it.
3: Thanks for having me.
0: John Xiao from Barclays. Meanwhile, rising oil prices are pushing pump prices here higher, and if WTI crude rises this week, it'll make eight straight weeks of gains. Crude prices are up nearly 22% over just the past two months as global demand continues to hit record levels, including China, despite its larger struggles. My next guest is not an energy analyst, and even he thinks this is the key trade for the third quarter and that prices will keep going higher. Let's bring in Ari Wald, managing director and head of technical analysis at Oppenheimer. I always want to point that out, Ari, welcome, because if you talk to an energy bull, they're always. But you're coming at this from a totally different perspective. Why does energy jump out to you here?
4: It it does. It speaks to the rotational aspect of this bull market as it stands. You know, a lot's been made about this unwind in the technology sector. It's paused after a terrific run. Uh, I think that trade is still intact. It comes back. But right now, the key trade has been the breakout in the energy sector. It's just finding what have been the laggards of the move to the upside. Energy rather range-bound for much of 2023 now just starting to break higher to the upside both in absolute and relative terms and i think there's some runway there
0: Exxon Chevron those don't look like they're your top ideas what's going on with those stocks
4: well i mean those are your low volatility high dividend paying safety stocks i think what's notable through this correction is that there's been a preference for more cyclical areas i mean they they've risen they're just to a lesser degree they're actually underperforming versus xle so i think it's really more on the emp side since so it's not a bearish call on Exxon or, or Chevron but just trying to find a little bit more juice and, and some of these uh, long term uh, EMP stocks that are breaking up through big long-term levels.
0: And I'll come back to that in just a second. But conceptually, it's interesting to me that we're bullish on the energy and production stocks while at the same time hearing that Permian production has likely peaked. I don't know if you have a comment. I, look, I know you're just looking at the charts, but I don't know if we need to reinterpret what that means or if the idea is even if production has peaked, higher prices would be supportive, oil prices would be higher, supportive of higher stock prices.
4: Yeah, it's is not, I don't think, a, a big uh, structural secular call on, on the overall oil, I think, which has really found a floor. And, and these stocks are finding a bid. And, you know, after the underperformance the sector has faced from 2014 to 2020, it was a big two-year run there. I'm still unsure if this is the, that structural shift in the sector. Instead, I see a lot of similarities to – Big moves in sectors like technology after the 2000 bubble, financials after the great uh, uh, in in 08 as well. You have a big run and then you're range bound for a number of years. That's not that's fine. And I think you're finding the lower end of that range. And some of those stocks can can work in that backdrop. So
0: you're kind of calling for a mini breakout within a range, that sort of thing. Or do you think this could really be a big one?
4: I think this is a tradable call. I think it works through the Q3 season, as we've seen here. And I think there's some individual components that could work for the long-term as well here. If we're thinking about a structural shift, let's find the stocks that are driving that structural shift.
0: In and sector. I know some of the names that you like because they've cleared their 2014 and 2018 peaks, which not everybody has. Conoco, Hess, Marathon, is that the ones you're referring to?
4: Those are the ones through some combination of falling less on the downside or acting as leadership on the way back up. That's where we're seeing meaningful strength for the long-term. They've reset with the sector uh, year to date, and now as they're turning higher, moving above their 200-day average, the setup is there for those long-term, you know, multi-year breakouts are just starting to get going again.
0: Did you kind of run this for the XLE more broadly, or are you more interested in finding the ones that have the most beta, so to speak, instead of just buying the broad index? It's,
4: looking at the XLE, uh, it's, you could see a, a sub-industry theme. It's it's a lot more on the EMP side. Some of the service names, they're, they're more the beta trades. That could work for short times. But if they pull back, you run that risk where you still have a long-term trend of lower highs that could start getting going again.
0: All right. I'm just going to throw it to you because, you know, you here. I can't waste the opportunity. Overall market range bound. through the, That's what Barry Bannister has been saying. Some others as well. What do you think?
4: We, it hasn't run its course, the seasonal correction. We've argued that the long-term positives outweigh the near-term negatives. I think this is a seasonal correction that proves temporary and an opportunity to buy a bull cycle that we think is only in its middle innings. With that said, they typically, these corrections uh, develop in three waves. I think we're in the first leg lower. Look for a counter trend bounce, but uh, maybe some additional uh, basing in the September months ahead of another strong Q4. Plenty
0: of time to study, you know, the energy stocks, if you will. (laughs) Get get that ready. All right, Ari, thanks so much for your time today for coming over. We appreciate it. Ari Wald with Oppenheimer. Coming up, a major event is heading for the healthcare space, with the federal government three weeks away from negotiating directly with manufacturers over prescription drug prices. We'll look at the names most at risk and why analysts expect it to trigger a flurry of deal making. Plus, XPRIZE founder. Peter Diamandis will join us on this year's $11 million competition. It's focused on using technology to detect and suppress wildfires like the one in Hawaii. And as we head to break, let's get a quick check on markets. Dow's struggling to keep its gains, but it's greener for the S&P, up half a percent, and the Nasdaq up eight tens today. The Russell sitting this one out, the 10-year note hovering around 416. We're back after this. September 1 is just a few weeks away when we'll know which 10 drugs will face Medicare price negotiations for the first time under a provision from the Inflation Reduction Act. My next guest expects one group of drugs and companies to be impacted first. You're looking at the names right now. And as a result, he also expects deal making in the sector to heat up as companies face imminent price declines. Joining us now is Mizuho healthcare strategist, Jared Holtz. Jared, welcome.
5: Hey, Kelly, thank you for having me.
0: I see a lot of familiar, listen, even Eli Lilly, come on their Teflon uh, is on this list. What's the class uh, that's first and most at risk here?
5: So the first is going to be Medicare Part D drugs. These are drugs that are um, purchased at your, you know, your typical pharmacy and are are taken at home. So it's a very broad, wide list that we're going to see. And, and what the government is trying to figure out now is, how they can truncate that list into call it the top ten; those are going to be the most impacted over the near term. And I think as we move forward here, they're planning on adding an incremental ten to twenty drugs per year. So it's really a conversation we're going to be having over in perpetuity, um, or at least for the next few years into the end of the decade.
0: Remind me what the industry jargon is for these. It's not like biol. What is the name? What are they called?
5: So these are part B and then part D drugs are administered in a provider setting in a doctor's office in a hospital. So that would be the other that would be the other end of the spectrum and those drugs are going to be impacted in the 2028 time frame. So it's part D first and then part B second 2 years later. So we're going to have these conversations around what drugs are impacted in 2026, those are the part D and then part B in 2028. And again, these lists are going to evolve as the government adds more and more single drugs to their list as they try to curtail pricing.
0: And Eli Lilly CEO David Ricks did tell us a couple of months ago it was already impacting R&D and term- them figuring out which drugs to invest in, you know, which ones to bring to market in the years to come. Uh, why do you think, even though I mentioned uh, Eli Lilly CEO, why do you think Bristol Myers is potentially most at risk here from a revenue point of view?
5: Well, Bristol has a, a lot of exposure over the near term. They have a they have a blood thinner, Eliquis. Um, they've got Revlimid, um, which they acquired as part of the Celgene deal. So there are, there's a lot of drugs that they have over the n- next couple of years that are going to probably be impacted. And then for Part B, they've got Updevo, obviously the big cancer treatment. So Bristol might be one of the the bigger um, you know, kind of targets as we look at the drug companies on an individual basis over the next few years. And clearly their multiple has been impacted the most, arguably, as they're trading, you know, less than half times, uh, less than half the S&P multiple here. So I think investors are obviously very keyed in on how Bristol kind of navigates the next few years as they deal with several products that are going to be under scrutiny.
0: And, you know, there's so many big picture questions I want to ask. How much could this affect the prices consumers are paying? Is this negotiations or are these price controls? Depending on whether you ask the industry or the administration, you get two very different answers. And maybe uh, court uh, lawsuits could turn this around. But I also want to make sure we talk about what you think could happen more near term, which is the potential for deal making. Who who to whom? uh, What what would you be on the lookout for here?
5: Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think we've started to see some of it play out over the past couple of years. Pfizer has been a very... Aggressive deal maker, uh, really, since 2019, 2020. Uh, Merck has done two you know, fairly sizable transactions, both north of 10 billion, uh, one in 2021, um, one earlier this year. So we're starting to see a flurry kind of come in. There have been some small transactions announced recently. Eli Lilly, as you mentioned, has been one. Novartis has been another one. So we're seeing the industry kind of proactively. Um, manage around the drug pricing risk. A lot of that is either finding commercial assets that are going to offset the pressure right away or as soon as possible. And others that are you know maybe less impacted or less under the gun, I would argue Lilly would be one of them, are looking at pipeline assets that they don't need right away, but surely help the longer term story.
0: Lilly, just this morning, of course, uh, completing the acquisition of Sigalon therapeutics, if I'm saying that correctly. So then biotech, which has been struggling, uh, broadly speaking, does it get a fill up here? I mean, is that kind of, is this a traditional kind of pharma to biotech acquisition story or is it a little more nuanced than that?
5: I think so. I mean, the the FTC has been, you know, very rigorous around their process for allowing large scale deals to go through. And that's why you really haven't seen the pharma to pharma merger of equals that we're, you know, maybe used to seeing that, you know, a couple decades prior, we still have Pfizer, Cgen that has not closed. Uh, Amgen Horizon is the second biggest deal. Um, that has not closed either. So we're probably looking at smaller biotech transactions. Unfortunately, the sector broadly has not really responded all that well to a lot of M&A activity. Investors just haven't been able to draft off of the, the single stocks or the one-offs and play the entire sector, which is... You know, very frustrating,
0: and maybe perhaps the specter, because the specter of more, you know, price controls or negotiations hangs over the whole space for for potentially some years to come. Jared, thanks. Well, for now, we appreciate it. Thanks, Kelly. Jared Holtz from Mizuho Today. Steelhead. ahead, it was once the biggest IPO in American history. It was also the first company to hit a billion dollars in size. More than a century later, it's now a takeover target worth only a few handles more than that. If you think you know it, tweet me at KellyCNBC and we'll tell you next on The Exchange. Welcome back. Let's get you a show and tell where we show you the chart and tell the story. And today it's all about U.S. Steel. That was the mystery chart we showed before the break. Shares spiking 33% after the company rejected a $7.3 billion offer from rival Cleveland Cliffs. Cleveland Cliffs CEO Lorenzo Gonsalves told Squawk on the Street he's still confident in his offer.
3: This deal will close. We are going to buy. Uh, we are going to be able to finish the deal. And uh, uh, with the support of the USW, we're going to have Uh, 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 an uh, an American champion among the top 10 in the world.
0: Cleveland Cliffs is no stranger to big mergers, having acquired AK Steel and the U.S. assets of ArcelorMittal a couple of years ago. Uh, You can see the stock performance here, though, where for about the past five years, not much has happened. And here's both Cleveland Cliffs and U.S. Steel Corp. Over the past 20 years, they never really recovered after this peak in 2008. But here's what Gonsalve said about his confidence in their execution and whether this management team can really boost the stock. Take a listen.
3: We acquired two companies, and instead of shrinking the workforce, we increased the, the size of the workforce by 1,700 employees. Revenues went from $2 billion in 2019 to $23 billion in 2022. Pro forma, will be $44 billion. We are happy with the size. I don't think we're going to be done at number 10, but being number 10 in the world is a good start for the United States of America.
0: That said, meanwhile, rival Nucor, which pioneered the mini mills that undermine these former steel industry behemoths, has seen its shares, here it is, rise 31% this year. It's a $43 billion market cap, more than five times the size of Cleveland Cliffs. If you take out today's deal, both U.S. Corp. and Cleveland Cliff shares were lower on the year. Coming up, the Maui wildfire. It's now being regarded as the deadliest U.S. fire in over a century. We will speak with one founder who's on a mission to change the way we prevent and battle the fatal flames. That's next.
6: Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. I'm Tyler Matheson with your CNBC News update. Economists at Goldman Sachs predict the central bank will start lowering interest rates by the end of next June. The economists also predict the Fed will skip a hike at its next meeting next month. It comes after a key data last week showed U.S. inflation rose less than expected. The director of the Federal Emergency Management Agency shared with MSNBC what the agency is doing to help Maui after the devastating wildfires out there. The agency has been moving commodities like food, water, protective masks and shelter supplies into the island More than 250 staffers also on the ground there with around 50 helping survivors in shelters register for aid after losing their homes. Economic damages from the Maui wildfire expected to hit at least 8 to 10 billion dollars. The damage estimate close to all of the tourism spending that was collected statewide in the first six months of this year. Accuweather's estimate looks at the staggering loss of life and property on the Hawaiian island that depends the most on tourism. 75% of Maui's GDP in 2021 came from tourism. Kelly, back to you.
0: Tyler, thank you. And we'll see you soon. Tyler Matheson, Hawaii officials were warned about wildfire risk in Maui nearly a decade ago, but failed to heed all the preventative recommendations, according to The Wall Street Journal. My next guest says we've been fighting wildfires the same way for decades. It's not working and we need to reinvent how we detect and battle these increasingly deadly blazes. His foundation is offering 11 million dollars to help make that happen. Let's bring in ex-prize founder, Peter Diamandis. Welcome back, Peter. It's good to see you.
7: Kelly, good afternoon. Good to see you as well. Good to be here.
0: I have to imagine this tragedy will shine a light. Your registration is open until October 31. You have 124 teams already, 33 countries. Um, Does any of of the entrants that you've seen so far offer the kind of solutions that could prevent something like the Hawaii wildfire from happening in the future?
7: I, I think so. And the beautiful thing about so at the XPRIZE Foundation, what we do is we put up a very large cash purse. Uh, it's $11 million. It should be much larger, given the billions of dollars going into loss of property and lives lost. And we say to you know, teams, entrepreneurs around the world, I don't care how you do this, as long as you can do it safely. Can you detect a wildfire at the moment of ignition? Right? When's the best time to put it out? Not when it's a conflagration, but at the initial spark, whether it's a lightning strike or whether it's terrorism, whatever it might be, when you see it. So can you detect it autonomously? and put it out autonomously within 10 minutes. That's the goal. And uh, we have lots of different approaches here. The beautiful thing is we get hundreds of different ideas. They're all being tested. And the one that works the best is the one that gets the cash. And we all get the benefits of that.
0: Wow, you almost think the insurance industry itself should fund uh, some of this. You know, I look at, at your founders, PG&E, obviously the utility, Betty and Gordon Moore, Hilton Foundation, Mindrew, and Lockheed, uh, a lot of nonprofits. Let me just ask you this. So we spoke with an expert, Patrick Brown, from the Breakthrough Institute last week. He said something that really caught my attention because I hadn't heard it before and actually goes to the heart of what you guys are trying to do. He said one of the reasons wildfires have become deadlier is that we're not letting them burn as long Mm -hmm. as we used to over the past 20 years. So there's more vegetation and kind of uh, what you would call tinder that makes these fires spread quickly and spread further. Maybe it depends on the area, the situation, what have you, but um, that was the first time I'd heard that maybe we're putting them out too quickly.
7: So you have to realize that this XPRIZE is not a solution for everything. Uh, Forest management is fundamental, You know how you light the proper fires, but destructive wildfires that are in the middle of a community should not be there. And one of the challenges is, if you live in an area that's had a wildfire, you can't get insurance anymore. What I hope will happen from this XPRIZE competition is we'll have a new industry. So imagine if you could hire the winners of this X Prize competition to come and give your, your resort or your vineyard coverage, right, where because you have this automation system, right? Here's okay. a challenge. While fire insurance pays you after everything's burned down, life insurance pays you next to kin after you're dead, Right. This is all about protecting from wildfire from happening in the first place.
0: No, absolutely. So, just kind of, I want. There's one more topic I want to ask you about, but just uh, finally on this. Oh, go ahead. What were you going to say?
7: Yeah, I'm just going to say. Listen, one of the goals here is, uh, like you said, if you're a team, if you're an entrepreneur out there that has an idea, go to xprize.org and register as a team. If you want to end this, you know, we have we're opening up the first prize we've opened up. Where the public contribute to the prize purse. So if you're sick and tired of this, and I know here in California, uh, myself and family members are, go to xprize.org/wildfire and contribute 10 bucks or 100 bucks to the prize purse. It goes always to the teams. So if you want to incentivize this being solved, uh, we can do that together. Let's get it from 11 million dollars up to 20 or 30 million dollars. True. Compared to 8 to 10 billion in Maui. It's a drop in the bucket.
0: And obviously, we'd love to see once, you know, once you have the entrance and go through it all, we'd love to see what some of these solutions are. Um, and we will talk more about this, by the way, in just a moment. But while you're here, Peter, there was one other major news event last week that I really wanted to ask you about because it surprises me. And, you know, it does it. It doesn't. Here's, here's my point. San Francisco, OK, the, the head, the, neo, the epicenter of, of regulation, I don't know what we want to call it, um, in this country and, and technology, is deregulating, of all things, autonomous taxis. And I'm curious if you think this is too fast, if it's, a day- look, I know we have to experiment, I'm all for it, but is San Francisco really, you know, the right place? Is this technology really ready for prime time?
7: So, you know, we've seen this before, Kelly, if you look back 100 years ago, around the year 1900, we went from an all horse and horse and buggy world uh, to cars coming online. And one of the analogies that's interesting is, uh, you know, in around 1900, if you started listening to the newspapers back then, there was this uh, this massive environmental disaster, which is horse manure. There were 100,000 horses, for example, generating two and a half million pounds of manure in New York City alone every day. And it was literally piling up. And it was the cars coming in, displacing the horses finally over the course of the next 25 years that relieved us of that problem. So uh, the same technology we're talking about, we've talked about before, Kelly, of AI, what we're seeing in this explosion of AI will ultimately make uh, autonomous cars safer than humans and much more efficient than humans. All right. So it's early days, we got to experiment. Uh, I think the upside is far greater than the downside.
0: I I certainly agree in the long run. It just, uh, I I can't help but noting that, you know, California, which sets the regulatory standard for everything in this country, is the first place where we're gonna let this massive experiment take place. Peter, for now, yep, unless you wanna offer a quick final thought. Just,
7: you know, listen, I know there's a lot of challenges out the world. I want to incentivize people, we can solve them. You know, it's the most extraordinary time ever in human history. Rather than complaining about problems, let's go out there and solve them. Uh, join us at XPRIZE.org, Kelly. Yeah. Thank you so much.
0: Build it. Build it. Uh, you know, Thanks. as they say. Peter, thank you. We appreciate your time today. Peter Diamandes. Steal ahead, we'll talk about picking up the pieces after a major wildfire, the steps some homeowners can take to recover their financial lives. That's next here on The Exchange. Welcome back. The economic loss from the fires in Maui could total as much as $10 billion. And as homeowners try to pick up the pieces, there are several crucial steps to take to recover financially. Let's bring in CNBC's senior personal finance correspondent, Sharon Epperson. Sharon, as this starts to affect more and more people every year.
8: Absolutely, and many victims just don't know where to turn for help, but of course ensuring your loved ones are safe and are being taken care of is most important. The next step though is to reach out to your home or renters insurance company to start the claim process as soon as possible. Also contact your auto insurer, and if you own a small business, your business property insurance company. You want to file a FEMA claim, too? You can reach out to the agency on the app or go online to disasterassistance.gov. And the faster you file a claim, the better, because that'll help expedite obtaining and getting coverage for temporary housing, experts say. Also make sure to keep all hotel and meal receipts And if you're concerned that you live in an area that is prone for wildfires or you just want to be extra cautious, insurance experts say it's a good idea to review your homeowner's policy at least once a year to make sure you have enough coverage and that you're aware of your deductible. You want to have adequate savings to cover that amount. Also make an inventory list of all of the items in your home. How do you do that? Well, experts say pretend you could turn your house upside down and write everything that would fall out. That will give you an accurate list of what's inside and you want to keep that list as well as important documents like your insurance policies off-site. Now, standard homeowners' policies generally cover fire and smoke damage, but it's always a good idea to double-check exactly what your policy covers. Take the time to do that. Pull it out and just look at it. Even if you're nowhere near an area that's prone to wildfires, that's good for every home. Right. We've do. done
0: where you take the video, just go around your house and video everything, just say mm-hmm. out loud what's in there. It's... it's easy right? for those exactly. of us overwhelmed by the prospect. Um, I think more attention is being focused on insurance, what it doesn't and does, doesn't doesn't cover the cost of it. You know, I keep hearing people in Florida and different places talking about that. Maybe in their case, it's more flood and, and, and wind. Do you think there would ever come a time where wildfire is more excluded or, or certain parts of the country, as we know, are becoming much more expensive? And that's changing the decisions about what people can afford and where they live.
8: There are actually some areas in California, for, for instance, that have special fire, claim, fire coverage in addition to the homeowners insurance. So I think that that is something that people want to pay attention to. Um, I don't know if it will ever be excluded. I know this is... As one insurance expert said, this is just epic on so many levels. And so we'll have to see after this what insurers decide to do. So many
0: things happening for the first time. Even the wildfire smoke over this part of the country, you wonder, you know, could it happen here? Exactly. Uh, Sharon, thanks very much. We appreciate it. Sharon Epperson. The Hawaii governor's office is encouraging people to go directly, by the way, to FEMA and to those resources Sharon mentioned for help. Meantime, Florida governor and GOP presidential candidate Ron DeSantis just sat down with our own Brian Sullivan. He didn't hold back either on Disney, China, Biden, Powell and so much more. You can see the whole interview tonight on Last Call, but the first snippets from it will be played right here after the break. Brian Sullivan joins us next. Welcome back. Republican presidential hopeful Ron DeSantis is fighting to win over potential voters as he trails former President Trump in the early polls. And he just finished an exclusive interview with CNBC Last Call's Brian Sullivan. It will air tonight at 7 Eastern, but Brian first joins us now from Tallahassee, Florida with the preview. Brian, thanks for bringing this to us. What'd you learn?
9: Yeah, well, I learned it's very hot, by the way, in Tallahassee, so I'm going this way. And the interview, I think, at times was hot. 30 minutes, no holds barred. All CNBC subjects, by the way, economy, interest, taxes, debt, deficit, the stuff that our audience and CEOs, by the way, clearly care about. So wrap that today. And, of course, as you noted, the full interview will be on last call at 7 o'clock tonight. However, I want to share a few bits with you that I think, Kelly, you, I thought about these just for Kelly Evans, by the way, number one, we talked about debts, we talked about the Federal Reserve, and we talked about interest rates. And I just said, listen, if you're elected, would you look to renominate Fed Chief Jay Powell?
10: I don't think he's done a good job. I mean, I think from COVID on, um, they, they put too much money into the economy. Mm-hmm. Uh, that drove the inflation. But then they said it was going to be transitory, that we had to unlearn Milton Friedman. No, when you start doing something like that, it's about 18 to 20 months, you are going to yep. see inflation. And so they were behind the ball on that. And then they've hiked so much now, it's caused a lot of problems in yep. the economy and could end up driving us into a recession.
9: Not a fan, obviously, there, of the Fed chief, nor Janet Yellen, who he had referenced earlier on in the interview as well. So there you go. And I know, Kelly, we do a lot, your show, my show, whatever. We talk a lot about Congress and stock trading. Now, while the president, him or herself, does not have the ability to ban Congress from trading stocks, only Congress can ban Congress from trading stocks because they'd have to make a new law, I asked him if he thought or would work with Congress to try to stop a practice that ticks a lot of people off, people in Congress trading stocks, often before critical legislation is passed.
10: I was a congressman for three terms. I sold all my stock before I went in because I used to do day trading. Not that I had a lot of money, but I would do it. I just stopped doing Because the thing is, is if I traded something, someone will then say maybe some vote was there. And I didn't even want the appearance of impropriety. And you look at how some of these people making windfalls Look, maybe it's all on the level, but I think the average citizen looks at that and they say, you know what? These guys play by their own set of rules, so I'd get rid of that. I would eliminate congressional pensions for members of Congress. They should—they have a 401k. They don't need both. Uh, and then I would impose term limits on members of Congress.
9: He also, Kelly, made some pretty strong comments about the size of the federal workforce and what he would do if elected to try to bring down debts and deficits. Again, just a couple of little things, snippets there, full interview Tonight at 7.
0: Yeah, we don't want to uh, steal too much. He, he was a day trader. I would, man, that, that I find quite a, I wonder if he was any good. He's not the
9: only one. Yeah. <laughs> when he said that, I was like, you, what? You went like on, I think he meant like on the side of being a, of, in Congress. I don't think he was like in some closet with a computer trading stocks. Either right. way, he would try to seek to ban it.
0: Right. Brian, what do you think is at stake here? I mean, he's trailing in the polls, but we will see him at the debate, correct, where we doubt the former president will show up.
9: Yeah. And by the way, the debate is next Wednesday, not in two days, but in nine days time. So it's already it's already upon us. I think a lot's at stake. Right. He just got back from Iowa. Uh, Yes, he's got a huge margin, according to the national polls. Some of the state polls look a little different. We didn't go into a lot of politics stuff. I'm going to leave that to some of the other channels and outlets, Uh, Kelly. Mostly we focused on interest rates, debt. His economic plan, uh, a lot about China also, by the way, and why he views them, quote, as an adversary, but knows we also have to work with them. So and- pretty wide ranging 30 minute interview. He was fired up. I was fired up. Hard not to be fired up when it's like hundred and
0: three degrees. Sure. And by the way, and take, taking some credit for Disney, but I won't steal from that. We can save that topic for a little bit later on. So uh, just we'll, we'll tease that for viewers so they, they know there's more coming. Brian, thanks so much. Thank you. Our Brian Sullivan down in Tallahassee, you can catch the full interview with the governor, Governor DeSantis, on the last call tonight at 7 p.m. Eastern, right here on CNBC. That does it for The Exchange. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place.